Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're somebody who's new, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors and it's great to have you. Before we begin, I just want to ask you a question. What do you think it takes to be a good leader? What does it take to be a good leader? Isn't that question always in front of us? You look at the news, we're faced with political leaders. You look around us, we have business leaders. We have school leaders. Mom and dad at home, guess what? You're a leader of your own little tribe. What does it take to be a good one? Another question for you is this. How important are the people that are around a leader? How important is their loyalty, their character, their integrity? How important are the people around a leader for their success? This morning, we're going to answer those questions in our study. Uh, what does it take to be a good leader, and how important are the people that are around a leader? Our study is going to be in 2 Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel 23. If you have been with us for a while, you know we've been in 2 Samuel for a long time, but believe it or not, next week is the last week of 2 Samuel. I know some of you can't believe that 2 Samuel actually comes to an end, but it does. Um, after that, we're going to do one week of a standalone message, and I'll tell you more about that next week, and then we're going to dive right into 1 Thessalonians, which I'm really excited about. I was studying for it yesterday. I mean, we're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about the end times, and then will there be sex during the end times? And okay, hopefully that joke went over. It was an old youth ministry one. But yeah, it'll be a really good study. It's going to be a lot of fun. Now, as we get into their study this morning, I've mentioned this for the last few weeks, and I, I'm mentioning it again because I know not everybody was here for the last few weeks. Um, 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel, those books are pretty much chronological, telling the story of King David and, then telling, and also telling the story of King Saul in 1 Samuel. But the chronological story came to an end at 2 Samuel chapter 20. And here, for the last four chapters, is sort of a summary. It's a, it's a wrap-up in the book. And it's not in chronological order. And when you read through it, it can be a little... Uh, confusing if you're not familiar with how the Hebrews would do their writing and how they would do their communicating and how they would say something they want to try and emphasize. It's put in the form of what's called a Hebrew inclusio, which means that you, in a unit of thought, the front side is mirrored in the reverse order in the back side with the exact center being your main point. So go ahead and show us what an inclusio looks like. You have the front side, and you have the back side, which is in reverse order, and the main point is in the dead center there. Now, if you look at the final four chapters, they're in this order. So go ahead and put that up. You can see chapter 21 starts with King Saul's sin caused a famine, but at the end it's about King David's sin caused a plague. You go in a little further, it's a list of David's mighty men and their victories, but at the end, in reverse order, it's a list of David's mighty men and their victories. Then chapter 22 is David looking back on his life, praising God for his faithfulness in the past. And the very beginning of chapter 23, which is where we're going to find ourselves this morning, 
is David looking forward and praising God for his faithfulness in the future. Last week we saw something that was a little funky when we studied chapter 22. Chapter 22 is what you call an inclusio inside of the inclusio. And when they're trying to make and emphasize a point, the Hebrews use this little inclusio thing. Look what chapter 22 was ordered like. Praise the Lord, God is my rock and savior. It begins with that and it ends with that. You go in a little bit, it's David's salvation, looking at it from God's perspective. Remember, we saw that. It looked at it from, looked like the God of Mount Sinai with fire and smoke. But then we saw on the bottom David's salvation from David's perspective, which looked very ordinary. God answered his prayers by giving him strength to pull back a bow of bronze, enabling him to leap over a wall. God just gave him really just ordinary strength, but just in a super ordinary way. But then in the center was the main point, which is why God saved David and how God responds to our life. Now as we begin this little section in chapter 23, the first seven verses, which are a little tiny inclusio, where David speaks about the future, guess what form they're in? It's another inclusio inside of an inclusio, which is another way of the Hebrews trying to say, this is the important stuff, this is where you want to go. Look how it orders itself. David was God's chosen king, and on the backside, the enemies of God and his king will be destroyed. You go in a little bit, it's that God spoke through David. And on the opposite side, God made an eternal covenant with David. And then, in the dead center, it answers the question, what are the qualities of an ideal ruler? As David looks forward to his sons and their sons moving forward, what kind of character in life should they live, is what he's talking about in that section. So that is how this organizes itself. Uh, since we're in chapter 23, the first thing we're going to be looking at is the first seven verses, which will answer the question, what does a good leader look like? It's that little inclusio and inclusio. And the rest of chapter 23 backs out and goes back to looking at a list of David and his mighty men, which answers the question, how important are the men that are around you when you're a leader? And how important is their character? and their life to your success. So, if you have your outlines, take them out. We're under the little graphs I gave you, and we'll begin with point one. What does it take to be a successful leader? It begins in the first verse. Now, these are the last words of David. When somebody begins with that, it's obviously designed to call your attention to the importance of that. If somebody says, these are my last words, you better lean in and listen closely. But there's another question here. Are these truly David's last words? Did he speak these words then croak? Or did he say something else afterwards? In fact, if you go to 1 Kings chapter 2, David is on his deathbed talking to his son Solomon. Those sound like his last words. Well, what about these words? I'll explain it to you. These are David's last public words, his last public proclamation. If you want to say his last public speech, 
But when you get to 1 Kings chapter 2, those are his last literal private words with his son Solomon. So when you, it's not a matter of one being right and one being wrong. It's just a matter of you have to understand the context. Now let's begin the first part of the inclusio. As we go through this, understand that this is a song and this is poetry. It's not Pauline literature. There it's all sort of longer and drawn out. This is a little packed. You understand it'll read that way. David was God's chosen king. It says, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse. And I'll stop there. The word oracle, it's an important word. It's typically, uh, in Hebrew, it means typically what is about to be said are God's own spoken words. So these are authoritative words. They're important words. But David identifies himself as, I am the son of Jesse, which is a way of saying, I was just a nobody. Jesse was a no-name man living in the no-name town of Bethlehem, which is a literal one-horse kind of a town in the ancient world. And when God told Samuel the prophet to go to Bethlehem to speak to Jesse about one of his sons being the next king, David in the family, he wasn't even invited to the party. I mean, he was just left in the field tending sheep. So in the no-name family, in the no-name town, he's the ultimate no-name guys. That's his origin. But then it continues. This is the oracle of a man who was raised on high. Even though I was a nobody, God chose me and God lifted me up. And he exalted me. So any good thing in my life didn't come from me. Guess who it came from? It came from God who was gracious to me. In fact, you see that theme being spoken again and again here in the book. Let's just look at 2 Samuel chapter 5. It says, David became greater and greater. Why? For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. God was the one who lifted him up through his tragedies and through his triumphs. And by the way, doesn't that apply to us as well? that we don't have anything going for us. But God is the one who carries us through our tragedies. God is the one who carries us through our triumphs. And when I was first reading this, I thought to myself, man, wouldn't it be cool to be someone like David that God chose to just delight in and lift from a nobody to be a somebody? And then as soon as I said that, I said, but God did do that. He did that for you, and he did that for me, through Jesus Christ. Isn't it true that we deserve the lake, of the lake of fire? There is nothing good that lives in us. Paul would go and say, we are literally dead in our sins and transgressions. We're objects of God's wrath, but God chose to delight in us. He chose to have his son die for us, and then he chose to reach down and soften your heart soften your life so you heard about Jesus, you trusted in Jesus, and you were born again by Jesus. God has been good to us. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
So as we go through this little section where David is giving his identity, I was a nobody that God made into a somebody all by God's grace. That's you. and That's me through Jesus. Let's go back to David's opening words. He was, he was lifted on high. Uh, he was raised on high, but he says he's also the anointed of the God of Jacob. The anointing was what Samuel did to him where he took a horn of oil and poured it over his head and anointed David as king. He says, I'm God's chosen king. I don't deserve it, but God did that. And he also describes himself this way. And I'm also the sweet psalmist of Israel. I'm the one that God wrote many of your songs through. And if you look at the book of Psalms, which is the Hebrew songbook, isn't David the author of many of those? Interestingly, while David wrote those psalms, as we're going to see in a moment, the psalms he wrote, even though they come out of the joys and the trials of his life, they're not just David's words. They're God's own words, as God speaks through him. See, that's what gets to the next layer, as we go to the next layer in, in the inclusio. After David has identified himself, he talks about what God has done for him. And the first thing he talks about is this. God spoke through David. He says, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His, his word is on my tongue. Think about that. David is claiming that the words he speaks are God's words where God himself is literally speaking through him. That's either incredibly arrogant and wrong or incredibly awesome and right. Many times people think the Bible are just man's speculations about God, but David says it's the opposite. The words he wrote, even in the words of the Psalms, were actually God speaking to us. This is one of a number of places you find in the Bible where the Bible claims to be God's very words to you and me. Not man's speculations about God, but God's revelation to us. Look under this in your outline. I have 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, that's the whole book right there, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. Literally it says, all scripture is breathed out by God, meaning all scripture is spoken by God's very breath. This entire book is God's words to you. Peter says the same thing. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of a man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. David didn't make anything of this stuff up. He spoke God's words, and he knows that. That's what he's saying. Now, as he is in this section saying, here's who I am, the one who's been lifted up from a nobody to be a somebody by God. Here's what God did for me. God spoke through me, and here's what he says. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, and here comes the center of this little inclusio. These are God's words that he wanted David to speak. Prior to this, it's all, we should listen up. These are really important. And here he answers the question, what are the qualities of an ideal ruler? 
thinking about his sons and his son's sons and his son's son's sons who will be king after him. He begins, when one rules justly over men and ruling in the fear of God, and then it will continue and tell you what the results are. Two qualities of a good ruler. A ruler will rule justly, do what is right, and a ruler will rule in the fear of God, realizing that they give an answer to God for what they do, not to anybody else, before they give an answer to anybody else. Let's look at this. Number one, leading justly. And this does applies to, obviously, future kings, but it also applies today. What does a good person in our government do? Try to do things with justice and fairness. What does a good leader in business do? Try to do things with justice and fairness. What does a good parent do with their kids? Try to make sure they do things with justly and fairly with their children and between their children and not play favorites. What is the most problem, common problem with leaders? It's called corruption. It's called favoritism. It's not doing things justly and fairly. They're doing things abusively. And so David says here, the first thing he says to his children and to other leaders, to be a good leader, do things justly and rightly. Secondly, lead with fear of God. In other words, remember that as a leader, you may not think you're accountable to anyone, but you are accountable to God for your choices. So leaders must fear God, whether they're a leader in the government, whether they're a leader in the business, or they're a leader in the home. They will give an answer for their leadership before God. And boy, did David learn this one the hard way. He was doing his leadership. Things were going really well. And then he saw Bathsheba. And, you know, I can do what I want because I'm the king. Who's going to stop me? Oh, I can get rid of her husband, Uriah. Who's going to stop me? I'm the king. He did not do things justly. He did not do things rightly. He murdered an innocent man. And who's going to hold him accountable? God. And you have seen that as we studied 2 Samuel. Four of his own sons died after he killed Uriah in response to that. There are hundreds and thousands of people in the nation have died. And the sword never even departed from his family. Boys, like he's saying to his kids, guys, focus on doing things justly. Focus on living with fear of God. It'll go a lot better for you as a leader. That's what it means to be a good leader. And then he describes the blessing of a good leader in the next part here. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout on the earth. A good leader who does things justly and rightly and fears God, it's like the sun on a cloudless morning. I know this is going to take some imagination, but you'll go there with me. Remember when it was warm out this summer? Did you ever get that thing where you get up early and you go on the back porch and you have that cup of coffee in your hand and you're just waiting, you just watch the sun come up and the rays of the sun coming over the horizon and the sun hits you and you just have that feeling like everything is good and right in the world right now. That's how refreshing it is from a good leader. That's how people are refreshed by them. 
by their justice and their fear of God. The second thing he says, this is a good leader, it's like rain hitting on grass on the earth. I don't know how your grass works. I'm one of those cheap guys that does not pay for a sprinkler system because I know that if you let the grass go brown, the roots go deeper. See, I'm trying to justify it. But, but what happens is when it rains, it's only a matter of hours. I look on that outside and that grass goes green and it has that super like effervescent green as you see it springing to life and the whole yard is growing. You know, that's the picture of what a good leader is like and the people under a good leader. All of a sudden, everybody is fruitful. Everybody is growing. Everybody is experiencing life under a good leader. This is what it's like, he says, to his sons and other leaders when you do things justly, rightly, and focus on fearing God. But here's the problem, folks, and you and I know this. Some leaders are more this way. Other leaders are less this way. Nobody is perfectly this way, are they? Every leader, even David, focused on not necessarily doing the right thing, but what was the comfortable thing. And you sort of wonder, you know, after a while, who are the leaders you can trust? Because every single leader out there seems to fail. Some fail more than others, but every single one does. Well, here's the answer, folks. There's only one person in the Bible who always did things justly and rightly and obeyed the Lord's words. There's only one person in the Bible who lived in complete fear of God and always honored God. And his name is Jesus. That means Jesus is the one leader who is always worth following. Jesus is the one leader who you can always trust. So he is the one leader that is worth giving your life to and following him no matter what the cost. Because Jesus will never let you down. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now let's continue through this inclusio. We've seen the center of the inclusio has to do with what does a good leader mean? Right before that, to prep for it, he talked about what God did for him. God spoke through him. Now we're on the backside. It's going to mirror it in the, in the opposite direction. What else did God do for him? God made an eternal covenant with David. Verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all of my help and my desire? So David looks at his impending death, and he looks at the lessons he's learned about leadership, and he's saying the good lessons about how to live for his sons that are following after him. But he knows he failed, and he knows that they're going to at times fail. But he's not worried about it. Because God made an eternal covenant with him, that no matter what happens, God is not going to give up on them. Some of you are going, okay, I read that, but I don't know much about that eternal covenant. Well, let me go back a little earlier in 2 Samuel. Right after, it was in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God made this covenant promise to David. Dovetails right in here. 2 Samuel 7. David's, God says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish your kingdom. 
but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And, you know, when they mess up, you remember Saul messed up, God was done with Saul. But when your sons mess up, I will not be done with them. I will discipline them and correct them, but I will not give up on them. And he continues, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So David has this promise that no matter what happens to his son, they may be disciplined by the Lord, but the Lord will not give up on them and there will always be the Davidic kingly line existing. And that worked for a number of years. Even when they had the divided kingdom, there was still a king of David sitting on the throne of Judah. But eventually, you and I all know that there is not a king of David sitting on the throne of Israel today. Eventually, that got squashed once and for all. But did God break his word? He didn't. And this is where Jesus comes along. Remember the book of Matthew and the book of Luke, they begin with a long genealogy. And you wonder, why is this genealogy there? Well, it's to show that Jesus is in the kingly line of David, that he is a legitimate descendant of David who can be king. And he's not just a human being, but he's a divine being as well. And Jesus, he sets up a kingdom, not like David set up a kingdom, but he sets up the kingdom of God. As he dies on the cross, in your place, for your sin, he rises from the grave to eternal life, freeing all who would trust in him from their sin and from eternal death. And Jesus is so good because he sets up a kingdom that will last forever. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that before Jesus, every knee will confess Every knee will bow to Jesus Christ as the Lord. So God kept his promise about an eternal kingdom of David, but it was fulfilled ultimately not just through a normal human being, but through Jesus. Now we look at the the last part of the inclusio. David talked about his identity in the very beginning as a son of Jesse who was lifted on high. Now we talk about Jesus or the enemies of God's king. The enemies of God, this king, will be destroyed. But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with a hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. In First and Second Samuel, worthless men is always the description of those who are enemies of God's king and God's kingdom like Nabal, if you remember him, he was an enemy of God's king, and they were always destroyed. So God raised up his king, but the exact opposite is, by the way, God will destroy all the enemies of his king. So that ends the first section, the inclusio. It's answering the question, what does a good leader and a godly leader look like? Now we go to the rest of chapter 23, which is about... What about the people that are around that leader? And here's the way it begins. When God raises up a leader, it's always good to know he raises up a team. This is not in the form of an inclusio. It's sort of straight text, but it's broken into four different sections. We begin with this. 
David's most famous soldiers, known as the Three. We're going to meet in this section uh, a group that is known as the 30, which are his top 30 soldiers. But there's a group on the top of the 30 known as the three, which are his top three soldiers. And it begins with his top three soldiers. So here's where we're looking. By the way, if you are pregnant and you're looking for baby names, we have you covered right here. There will be nobody in the nursery who will have a name like this. I guarantee it. So here's the first guy, uh, Jashib Bashibath. Jashib Bashibath, a Tecmonite, was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. Wow. Most likely these were Philistines. This guy killed 800 in one battle all by himself. Uh, this weekend I was looking at the new Aquaman movie and I had to check out the new Aquaman movie because in the graphics on that movie, one of the people who did the graphics is a guy named Kale Schmidt. Kale Schmidt was my oldest son's best friend. Uh, Kale is Leland Schmidt, who was our former youth pastor's son and he was one of the you know, graphics. So we had to watch Aquaman, so we had to read through every name in the credits, which, by the way, is a long until we found his name and take a picture of it, you know, so I can send it. Hey, look, we found Kale. He's an Aquaman. But I thought, Aquaman, he's like killing all these bad guys throughout the whole movie, and he's fictional. I'm preaching on a guy this weekend who literally killed 800 bad guys in one fight. And this guy, Josh, like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, that guy, whatever his name is. Uh, obviously pretty impressive. Next to him, as part of the three, was a guy named Eleazar. We can read about him on the next page of your outline. Next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines, who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. This text is a little bit ambiguous about who defied who in this particular battle. But there's a parallel account of this, this guy and more details about him in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. And these are the details we pick up. Apparently, he and some of the other mighty men were defending a field of barley because what the Philistines would do is they would come at harvest time and they'd take over a field and they'd scare everybody away and either they'd burn it or they'd steal the crops for themselves, leaving the Israelites hungry. So the Philistines, a whole bunch of them, were trying to harass the small group of mighty men who were defending the field. Everybody left. Everybody ran for their life but Eleazar. And he single-handedly fought the entire group of Philistines. I'm thinking this guy must have been like a weed whacker with a sword in his hand, you know. They just had to come and strip the slain. And he was so into this, they had to peel his fingers off of the sword because he couldn't release it with his own hand. And that's pretty impressive. Now, incidentally, you're wondering, like, how many people did he kill? Later we're going to find out uh, a guy who killed 300 in one battle, but he wasn't as good as the three. This guy's in the three. So it's obviously more than 300 in the battle. So he killed single-handedly. 
Next, we have a guy named Shammah. He's also in the top three. Next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi the Herahite. The Philistines gathered at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. Here we go again, Philistines squaring away people to try and steal the crop. But he stood in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. Now there's one thing that has been mentioned twice. We've sort of passed over it. It says twice so far that the Lord worked the great victory. The success of these men isn't just that they were incredibly athletic, that they were incredibly strong, incredibly courageous, but it was the fact that God worked through them to give them the victory. If you were here last week when we studied 2 Samuel 22, remember when David was facing battles and trials? He prayed to the Lord, and God came to the rescue, coming from heaven with literally fire out of his mouth and smoke under his feet. That's what it looked like from God's perspective. But from David's everyday, ordinary perspective, he says, God gave me the ability to bend a bow of bronze. God gave me the ability to leap over walls. God gave me the ability to fight a whole troop of soldiers. God showed up in answer to David's prayers by giving him almost incredible endurance, incredible strength, incredible skill in the battle. When a guy kills 800 people single-handedly in the battle and doesn't get a scrape, who's working on that guy's side? God. God is the one who is at work in these three mighty men. I suspect they prayed. I suspect they asked God for help, and God showed up by giving them the ability not to leave that trial, but to endure and be successful in that trial. And isn't that applying to your life and mine? When you hit the trials, when we hit the difficulties, we pray. And many times God doesn't take us out of those trials, does he? He carries us through those trials. He gives us the ability we need in those trials to be able to persevere and endure. That's exactly what God did for these three men when they found themselves in incredible fights that were beyond their normal abilities. Next section on the mighty men is called Loyalty and Love from Water in Bethlehem. Three of the 30 men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. Now we've gone from the three, which is the top three, we're into the next group called the group of the 30. And David is encamped in a cave at Adullam. And the Philistines, by the way, are pretty far into Israel at this point. They're in the Valley of Rephaim. And we read this. Then David was in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem, which means they're pretty far into Israel at this point, because the Philistines shouldn't be in Bethlehem, should they? And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. It's harvest time. It's hot. David thinks back when he grew up in Bethlehem. There's a well in the front of the city. I'm sure it's a deep well. The water is really cool. He's hot. And he sort of says this off the cup. 
cuff. Oh, I just wish I had some cold water from that well. I remember that when I was a kid. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. Three of the top 30 men decided that they would go, probably by night, the 15 miles from the cave of Adalam to Bethlehem, literally breaking through the Philistine fortifications only to get a canteen of cold water for David, just to bring it back. Does that show you the kind of love and loyalty that they have for him? But then it gets interesting. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. I think this was probably David's finest hour because he realized what great cost and what great risk that water was, and he said, I don't deserve something like this. The one who deserves that kind of honor is God himself. Samuel had warned about a bad king. A bad king would always take. A bad king would put themselves first. This is David not taking. This is David not putting himself first. But he is teaching his men What's far more important than him is God himself. Next, we have two other notable heroes. The first one is called Abishai. Now, Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the 30. And he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them. And won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30. And he became their commander. But he did not attain to the level of the three. If you remember who Abishai is, David has a sister named Zerui, and this is one of Zerui's kids. And Abishai has showed up a number of times in our studies of 2 Samuel. And he has a particularly good skill set, which is called killing people. He's a good assassin. Uh, we've, he offered to assassinate Saul, and David stopped him. He was involved in the assassination of Abner. He was involved in the assassination of Amasa. Uh, he offered to assassinate a guy named Shammai. That, he said, can I take his head off? And David stopped him. And back, if you were in chapter 21 with us, when David almost lost his life because he was being attacked by a giant, this is the guy who came to David's aid and killed the giant for him. Uh, so he's a pretty impressive guy. But being that impressive, he still wasn't as good as the top three. The next guy is this, Benaiah. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kadzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. In other words, he became the commander of what's known as the Carathites and the Pelathites, were David's bodyguards. 
couple things. He killed two Ariels. You're like, okay, who are the Ariels? I have no idea. Neither do any other Bible scholars. How about that? Um, that's the Ariel. An Ariel is just literally an English translation of the Hebrew word because nobody knows what it is. In the Septuagint, uh, the Septuag- authors of the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament commonly used around the days of Jesus, um, says these people were probably sons of the king of Moab, though they're not sure. But I'm still impressed because he took out a lion in a pit on a snowy day, which doesn't sound that impressive until I put it to you this way. What happens if I took you and put you in a cage with a lion and then put snow all over the ground and let you wear your croquettes? How's your footing going to be? Do you think you're going to handle it well when you're actually going against a hungry lion who has four feet and he has like claws to handle things? Ah, but this guy took out the lion. And he also took out, it says, an Egyptian. There's a parallel account in 1 Corinthians 11 that tells us more about this Egyptian. It says it was a man of great stature, another giant. He took out the giant. All he had was a stick in his hand through which he took out the guy's sword and then killed him with his own weapon. But here's my favorite part about him. He was the son of Jehoiada. Jehoiada was one of the priests. This guy was a pastor's kid. He was. He's a pastor's kid. He ends up leading SEAL Team 6. That's literally what we have going on with this fellow. Now the very end, which gives us the complete list of the 30, which as we get done reading them, you'll find are actually 37. So this is the part that has all your new baby names in it. And go easy on me if I can't pronounce them all right, because it's one tongue twister after another. Here we go. Ashael, the brother of Joab, was one of thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shammah of Herod. Elikah of Herod. Helaz of Paltite. Ira, the son of Ikesh of Tekoa. Abiezer of Anathoth. Um, Mebunai the Hushathite, Zalman the Ahohite, Nahari uh, the Netophath, oh boy, that's a tough one, Helab the son of Banna of Netophah, Atai the son of Rabbi of Gibeah, of the sons of Benjamin, Beniah of Pirathon, Hidiah of the brooks of Gash, Abi Alban the Arbathite, Asmaveth of Baharim, Elihaba of the Shalbanite, the son of Jashan. Jonathan, that's normal. Shammah, the Herorite. Ahiam, the son of Sherar, the Herite. Eliphalet, the son of Ashbai, of Maka. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. Hezro, of Carmel. Parai, the Arbite. Egal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah. Bani the Gadite, Zelek the Ammonite, Nahari of Birath, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zerui, Ira the Irithite, Gareb the Ithrite, and Uriah the Hittite. Thirty-seven in all. Couple observations. Who's missing? Anybody know? Who's the captain of the army? Or at least who was for a while? Joab. Joab is missing. 
because Joab <laughs> killed Abner in a time of peace when David had made peace with him. He killed Amasa after David had made peace with him. And he also killed Absalom when he was expressly told not to. He was demoted. He is not in this list. Benaiah, when you get to 1 Kings chapter 2, Solomon tells Benaiah to take Joab out and he kills him. That's why he's not there. Second thing I want you to notice is the first and the last names in this list. They are both people who died. Ashael is Abishai's brother, dies in war. But the last person on the list who dies is someone that David kills, Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was not just a nobody. He was one of David's most famous soldiers. He was one of David's most loyal soldiers. And yet David wanted his wife and killed him. It's a reminder, folks, the greatest enemy to David and his kingdom didn't come from outside of the kingdom. It came from inside of the kingdom. It was himself. That, when he didn't pursue justice and didn't live in fear of God, that was the big threat to the kingdom. Nothing from outside, all from inside and himself. And boy, isn't that often the truth today? What can we learn? I gave you four takeaways in the bottom here. Number one, a good leader focuses on justice for people and accountability before God. And obviously David gives us a positive example of that, but at times he gave us a negative example of the consequences of that with regard to Bathsheba and Uriah and all the devastation that came. Number two, God promised to establish an eternal kingdom through David's family line. The descendant of David who established the everlasting kingdom was Jesus. So he is the leader worth following and the leader that we can always trust. Number three, when God raises up a leader, he raises up a team of courageous and godly people around them. God usually works through a team. We read about David, but we often forget there's another guy that killed 800 at once, another guy that killed 300 at once, two other guys that killed more than 300 at once, willingly to work and fight with David. And I thought to myself, if that's true then, folks, it's still now, true now. God doesn't just work through a people or a person. He works through us. He works through you and me. He works through all of us at Crosswinds to reach people with Jesus. It's not a job of one person. God works through all of his people to do it. So I'd invite you, if you are not somebody who's actively involved, putting your shoulders to the wheel to help us reach people with Jesus, please join the team. God will work through you in mighty ways, just like he worked through David, in David's men in mighty ways as well. Lastly, the success of David and his men did not come from really their natural strength, but from God as they courageously prayed and risked their lives for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text, this chapter, where David reminds us of what it takes to be a good leader. Men or women who pursue justice and live in fear of God. And a reminder that while we focus on David, the great success that he had didn't just come from him, but it came from the amazing team of men that you put around him. I thank you, Heavenly Father, 
that you are reaching people with Jesus in this community. And I thank you, you don't do it just through one person or a small group of people, but you do it through all of the team of people you have gathered in this church with their different gifts and their different skills. Thank you for using us for the mission of reaching people with Jesus. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.